0: The neurobiology of creating and breaking habits how do we activate the dorsal lateral striatum to instill new habits successfully how do we override the lateral habenula to prevent us from relapsing to our old habits how long does it really take for a new habit to form keep listening on to find out only here on the people scientist podcast Hi, People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast, the first episode of the year 2020, a new decade. How exciting is that? Well, today in episode 42, I am kicking off the new year with some neuroscience behind habit formation. Now, the formation and elimination of habits is rooted in neuroscience and psychology. So in the new year, you may be reflecting on your 2019 year and perhaps have made some new goals for yourself. Those goals are either going to be to add a new good habit or to eliminate a bad habit. me personally, I have a lot of goals for myself. For example, I want to publish my two lead projects this year in Nature, one of the top journals in the world. I want to expand this platform and continue to grow the People Scientist podcast. And in my personal life, I am a dancer, so I want to be an even better and more skilled dancer. But what are your goals for this year? So in today's episode, I hope to help you achieve your goals as I'm going to dive into the neuroscience and psychology of how habits are formed. And using that knowledge, I will provide some tips on how to use our own neurobiology to help us develop healthful habits and help us eliminate unhealthful habits. So as we always do, let's start off with some core takeaways. We know that certain brain regions regulate our ability to form automatic habits. We also know that if we want to break a bad habit, then we have to override those habit brain regions. Luckily, with neuroscience, we know how to do that. Very simply, to override a bad habit, we need to activate our conscious thought and decision-making brain regions. Essentially, what this means is the first step to breaking a bad habit is to be more mindful of our automatic subconscious actions. If we consciously choose to stop doing that bad habit, then the next step is to consider our withdrawal and relapse brain regions, which will likely be activated in that scenario. To deal with these brain regions being activated and in order to prevent relapse, we either need to accept and live with the withdrawal symptoms, or we can deal with them by adding in healthful, rewarding behaviors to override these brain regions. I also cover the opposite scenario, meaning if we want to instill new habits, how can we use neuroscience to do that? Well, we need to activate those habit brain centers strongly. How we can do that is by making the action rewarding. It can either be intrinsically or extrinsically rewarding or motivating. For example, intrinsically motivating is to do an action you enjoy in order to fulfill your goal. If your goal is to exercise more and you love music and you love to dance, then you can achieve your goal of exercising more by dancing. You can also find a goal that is intrinsically important to you. For example, if your goal is to exercise more, but you are exercising more because you want to be around to see your grandkids grow up, then frame your goal in your mind to be healthy for your grandkids. Then your love for your grandkids is what will be intrinsically motivating to you. Extrinsic motivation is tangible rewards such as prizes, praise, or rewards for yourself if you've achieved your goal. While these extrinsic rewards are not necessary to form a habit, scientists say that they can be helpful. I get into even more tips, such as combining new habits with old healthy habits, how long does it actually take to form a habit, and more. So now, let's get into the details. Let's start off by defining a habit. A habit is a learned automatic, repeated behavior. Often in neuroscience and psychology, we differentiate between goal-directed decision-making and habitual decision-making. Now in the beginning, making a decision or planning an action, for example, such as planning to smoke a cigarette, involves conscious thought, perhaps planning to go buy the cigarettes and choosing what type someone wants, and then thinking of the reward. But this action of smoking can become subconscious over time, meaning that without conscious thought, you just automatically go to smoke. This could be due to environmental cues and triggers, which helped form that habit. You see, over time, the environment in which someone does an action repeatedly, such as smoking a cigarette, that environment becomes a cue or trigger for that action. Your brain recognizes this cue, and environment, and you automatically go to smoke without the goal, meaning getting a pleasurable feeling, without that thought being consciously on your mind. So a habit can be formed and an action taken, even when the goal isn't there anymore. So for example, let me put it into this context. In some animal studies, rodents can be taught to press a lever for a reward such as a sugar pellet. The rodents learned to do this, and their action of pressing the lever was goal directed because the goal was sugar. But over time, this action gets stored as a habitual memory task, and the action of the rodent pushing the lever now just becomes a habit. To prove this, scientists have devalued this reward and have given lots of sugar to the rodents prior to the lever pressing task, and the rodents got to eat as much sugar as they wanted. And there was even excess sugar left in their cage. So the rodents were very satiated. Then the rodents were allowed to push the lever for the sugar reward. And the rodents still pushed the lever the same number of times as before when they didn't even get sugar. So even though the goal has become devalued, and the rodents don't want any more sugar, the action of pushing the lever has become a habit. So it's an automated response that is no longer goal-directed. This is seen clinically in humans as well. For example, with smoking cigarettes or eating junk food regularly, habits can be formed around these rewarding things. For example, around the same time of day, in the same location, with the same cues, smoking or eating junk food can happen regularly in many people. For example, after dinner, someone may watch their favorite show on the couch and eating junk food every evening so the time of day, the couch, and the TV are their cues or triggers. Even if the person doesn't feel like they need or want to eat junk food, they may feel compelled to do so because it has now just become a habit. And certain craving brain regions may be recruited when these environmental cues or triggers are seen. Now you see in this example, habits are not healthy. Habits But they can be healthy and beneficial. So smoking, chronic alcohol consumption, eating junk food regularly, these are examples of unhealthy habits. But healthy habits that the grand majority of us do every day can include brushing our teeth, drinking water, eating nutrient-rich food, exercising, or stretching every day. So now the question becomes, how can we use our own neurobiology to institute healthy habits and to help eliminate unhealthy habits? So to start off, let's briefly dive into the neurobiology of habit formation. Amaya and Smith in the journal Current Opinion in Behavioral Sciences in 2018 wrote a really great review on this topic. Now they discuss how a particular brain region in the reward center of the brain is very important in habit formation, and that brain region is the dorsolateral striatum. Now a nearby brain structure, the dorsal medial striatum, instead promotes flexibility and goal-directed behavior, so the opposite to automated habitual behavior. So these two neighboring brain regions within the striatum are very important in our ability to make habits and in our ability to be flexible and change our actions to suit the goal in mind. Now, these brain regions are also important for regulating specific movements of body parts, particularly the medium spiny neurons that respond to dopamine. And I find that really fascinating because a lot of the times our habits do involve certain physical actions, such as picking up a cigarette and bringing it to our mouth, you know, picking up food or picking up a drink and bringing it to our mouth. And these brain regions appear to be very important and involved in the physical actions of our habits. So it is thought that the dorsolateral striatum is essential for our physical habitual actions, such as smoking a cigarette, eating junk food, drinking alcohol. But the dorsolateral striatum is not the only important brain region in habitual learning. For example, the infralimbic cortex has also been implicated in the ability to carry out habitual tasks. Now, dopamine is a very important neurotransmitter. that helps us learn what is important for us to survive, and in order to do that, it tells us if an action is rewarding or pleasurable and as i said it's also dopamine is also very important in our body's movement uh, to show this or illustrate it for example individuals that live with parkinson's disease that is characterized by uncontrolled movements unfortunately have abnormal dopamine signaling in their brain but how do we know that these brain regions and neurotransmitters are important in these behaviors that such as habitual formation. Well, the reason why we know that these brain regions are important for habit formation is because neuroscientists use techniques such as optogenetics and dreads to inhibit or activate these very specific brain regions during complex behavior tasks in rodents to determine the role of these brain regions in the task. Other technologies such as fibrophotometry And single-cell calcium recording can tell us the activity of certain neurons or certain brain regions during habit formation, habit learning, or habitual behavior. In humans, fMRI, or functional magnetic resonance imaging, can give us insights into which brain regions are being recruited during decision-making tasks. So that's how we know that these brain regions are important in habit formation. Another important brain region involved in our ability to form habits is the substantia nigra. The substantia nigra, which has a large dopamine input to the striatum, regulates habit formation too. It is known that the greater the dopamine input to the dorsolateral striatum, the stronger and quicker the habit formation. So perhaps this important information can be translated into the more rewarding or pleasurable an activity, And the more likely someone is to form a habit around achieving that goal. So can we use this as a neurobiology hack? Well, Lally and Gardner in 2013 in the journal Health Psychology Review wrote an article on habit formation in people. Now, These authors dive into how a habit can be both extrinsically and intrinsically motivating. They noted that if something is extrinsically motivating, meaning you can obtain a tangible reward for an action, such as a money reward, praise from other individuals, or a prize, then yes, it can help with habit formation and achieving a goal. Possibly because winning a reward is pleasurable and can activate the reward centers of the brain, such as the striatum. But many scientists show that these extrinsic rewards are not necessary to form habits, but instead intrinsic motivation is what is most important. So intrinsic motivation means you are doing an action simply because you are interested in it, you enjoy it, or because you feel the need to change because you personally are afraid of the health consequences and want to be healthier. This intrinsic motivation is key. So before you even decide your goals, my first suggestion is that you need to ask yourself, what is important to you? And next, what are your interests? If, for example, your goal is to exercise more, then you need to find intrinsically, why do you want to exercise more? What will motivate you? Do you want to exercise more because you have a fear of developing a chronic disease? Is it because you want to be healthy into your retirement so you can travel the world? Is it because you want to gain confidence? Is it because you want to do it to benefit your mental health? Find out why exercising is important to you. Then next, find your interests to help you achieve your goal. For me, I personally love to dance and perform. So for my exercise, and in order to help me stay healthy, I dance and perform as my exercise. When I dance, I also get to spend time with my friends, so that adds an extra extrinsic motivating factor for me. So the first step to forming a good healthy habit is to find what motivates you both intrinsically and extrinsically, before you even develop or state your goals. But how else can you add extrinsic motivating factors to help you form that new habit? Well, for example, a few clinical trials have shown that heat therapy can have mood elevating properties. For example, Masuda and colleagues in 2005 reported that thermal therapy or sauna use for 15 minutes a day significantly improved symptoms of depression in those with mild depression and dopamine deficits. They stated that a warm bath at 42 degrees Celsius for 10 minutes may also have similar benefits. So for example, you can add some of these mood-elevating tasks or things to your habit or routine to help make it more extrinsically motivating. So for example, with heat therapy, I chose to do hot yoga. I combined the concept of the mood-elevating heat therapy with exercise to make doing this task even more motivating. Using fMRI, we know that music can also recruit brain reward centers in the brain, so this can help make a task more rewarding and motivating. I encourage you to go back to my podcast episode 1 on this podcast, where I provide a long list of healthy tasks that can be extrinsically motivating because they are known to release dopamine in the reward centers of the brain. But how else can we ensure our new healthy habit remains? What determines habit strength or the ability to break a habit? Well, in the review I mentioned earlier by Amaya and Smith, they note that the strength of a habit can also be determined by the activity of the brain regions that regulate habitual learning. So one way to further activate these regions is through a short and quick route, which is to add on a new healthy habit to a current habit that already activates or recruits these habitual brain learning regions. For example, let's say someone's goal is to learn a new language. What they could do is attempt to learn five new words in that language every time they brush their teeth in the morning and evening. Now, they brush their teeth twice a day, and that is quite an ingrained habit already. So now they are adding on a new habit to that old habit. This makes it easier to obtain because their old habit is already so ingrained in their routine and likely already activates these habitual brain regions. Another example of this strategy is to go to the gym or an exercise class at the end of your commute home every day before going home. Your commute is probably a habit already, and instead of going home where there may be cues to previous unhealthy habits, such as eating junk food or being lazy or not exercising, then you could add on exercise to your commuting routine. Here's another example I thought of. If your goal is to be more flexible or to do more exercise, you can add this onto another habit. For example, many people when they wake up in the morning They normally go on their phone for about 10 minutes or so before they start their day. So you can add stretching for 10 minutes while you're on your phone the first thing in the morning when you wake up. That is another quick way of adding a new habit to your already ingrained old habits. Another strategy that may take longer but could still be very successful is to find something that is so intrinsically motivating that you have to carve it out into your daily routine. So you aren't attaching it to an old habit, but now you're really trying to make it its own new habit. In this scenario, you you have to use your planning, goal directed and decision making brain regions first before they can become automated actions. In this scenario, specific and actionable goals are best. So don't just say I need to exercise more. Your goal needs to be more specific and actionable. So instead, your goal could be rephrased to say, I want to do hot yoga Monday, Wednesday, Friday at the 6.30 p.m. class after work. This means then that you need to look at your schedule and think of the specifics on how to achieve this. Do you need to take your workout clothes with you to work? Do you need to buy a membership or class passes in advance? Do you need to recruit someone to take these classes with you so that you are held accountable? Successful people that instill new healthy habits are more likely to schedule a new task into their calendar rather than having a general to-do list without any specific actionables. Now that is the difference between a general unactionable goal and a specific actionable goal. Lally and colleagues in the European Journal of Social Psychology in 2010 investigated habit formation in a clinical trial. Now the old question of how long does it take to form a new habit was answered very well in this study. Lally and colleagues specifically studied this. How long did it take a new healthy habit to become an automatic behavioral action? And they stated that it took anywhere from 18 to 254 days, with the median length of time being 66 days for a new, healthful action to become a habit. So the variation was quite high, 18 to 254 days. So what determined that variability? It's also important for us to keep in mind that it may take longer for a new, healthy action to become a habit, and that's okay. So in order to investigate why there was so much variability, the authors noted that if the action was simple, it was more likely to result in a strong habit Versus a complex action. So for example, if you want to learn a new language, memorizing five new words of a new language every day while brushing your teeth is more likely to form as a habit quickly and more strongly than the reverse of you choosing to approach it by saying, okay, well, I'll learn five verbs, five nouns, uh, five questions, and ten statements in a new language every day. So keeping your goals simple in the beginning seems to be a good idea. And then you can expand your goal from there to be more complex. The scientists in the study also noted that performing the task with the same cues at a similar time every day seemed to help institute greater automaticity or greater development of the habit. A cue, for example, can be a location, like a room that you're sitting in. It can be a sound, such as a song. A cue can be the running shoes that you will put on every day before you exercise. These are all cues or triggers to remind you of the action that you are about to take. Let me give you another example. Do you ever realize how the song or sound that you play for your alarm to wake up in the morning over time could be associated with a negative feeling if you ever hear it in a different context? If I have ever heard my alarm tune playing Played As someone's ringtone out in the public, I automatically think, oh, I, I hate that sound because it reminds me of being startled and woken up in the morning. This is what we call a learned response to a cue. But we can do the same thing with a favorable response to help us form a habit. For example, you can associate a song or sound with the completion of your workout or completion of your task. Over time, you will associate a feeling of success with that song. Then you could play that song as a cue to help motivate you to begin that task as well. can add an extrinsic motivating factor, because you may associate your success with that cue or with that song. So there are some tips on how to instill habits more successfully. In brief, choose enjoyable goals that are important to you. Make your goals specific, simple, and actionable. Now how about the opposite? What if we want to break a bad habit? Well, referring back to the previous paper I mentioned by Amaya and Smith, they know that the strength of the habit can also be determined by the weakening or inhibition of the cognitive and conscious thought centers of the brain. So essentially what this means is the more automatic and subconscious we make our actions, the more likely they are to become habitual. So in order to break a habit, we need to strengthen the recruitment of our cognitive decision-making centers. Meaning we need to consciously think of our actions and reassess what our goal is. So ask yourself, do I really want this cigarette right now? Do I really feel the need to eat this chocolate right now? Breaking that automatic response and questioning it is the first step to overriding the habitual centers of the brain. However, once we ask ourselves that question and and decide to stop that habit, then other neural circuits in the brain now become important. And those neural circuits are the withdrawal and reward centers of the brain. And I elaborate on this in episode one of this podcast. But briefly, I will describe it here for you. Our environment is our cue or trigger to receive a reward or to do a task in order to receive a reward. So for example, if you smoke a cigarette at 7 a.m. every morning at your kitchen table, then that time of day and that kitchen area is a trigger to you to smoke a cigarette. Then if you sit in that area and consciously think, do I really want this cigarette? That is great because that is step number one, to question and be more conscious of your automatic actions. But then if you choose not to smoke that cigarette in that environment, then your withdrawal or disappointment centers of the brain, such as the lateral habenula and the interpeduncular nucleus, may be activated. Now, These brain regions are activated and are known to induce feelings of stress, anxiety, and typically withdrawal-like symptoms. A lot of work has been done to prove this by many scientists such as Andrew Tapper, Paul Kenny, and Mariella DiBiase, and many more. So if you start to feel those feelings of stress, anxiety, and withdrawal, then people may be likely to relapse and go back to their old ways. So how do you prevent those brain regions from becoming activated? Well, there are two ways. You need to get rid of your cues and triggers. For example, for the first while, spend time in a room where you never smoke. Avoid spaces where you smoke. If your unhealthy habit is eating junk food and your trigger is the work-lunch room, then for the first little while, you may want to avoid that work-lunch room. Because if you're in that queue or that environment, that is what's going to activate those withdrawal brain centers, the lateral habanula and potentially the interpeduncular nucleus. After some time, if you can't avoid those spaces altogether, perhaps you can change what those environments mean to you, so to get rid of that association. So for example, you could do other rewarding activities in those spaces, such as listening to your favorite songs, talking to a friend on the phone, reading a good book, watching a comedy, doing stretching exercises then you change what you associate with that environment. Another strategy is you may also change what the environment looks like so that it is no longer a cue to your brain. For example, if your kitchen is a trigger for you to smoke cigarettes or to eat junk food, perhaps you could change the color of the walls, put up new artwork, change the layout and where you sit. This may help change the environment and the ability for it to be a trigger to you. This goes for other unhealthy habits, such as eating junk food or drinking too much alcohol. Once you have recognized your triggers and tried to deal with them by avoiding or changing your triggers, then the next steps could be to deal with the withdrawal symptoms with two other strategies. Now, the first strategy I found was during my research for the ketamine episode 40 I had done, and that is mindfulness-based relapse prevention. This strategy was written by Sarah Bowen and colleagues, and she published a clinician's guide to this in a book in 2011. Essentially, this strategy is a meditation strategy that aims to train individuals to be more mindful and conscious of their thoughts, cravings, environment, triggers, and their goals, which is really step one that I mentioned previously, meaning to be more conscious of your actions in order to break the automatic responses we have in, over, in order to override those habit brain centers. Then Sarah goes on to how to train individuals to learn to be comfortable with their withdrawal symptoms as opposed to trying to escape or get rid of them. So for example, the clinicians would ask the subjects, what was your direct experience and how did your mind and body react to that? then over time the individuals may place themselves in an environment that is likely to be a trigger and aim to practice their mindfulness there. They aim to ride the wave of craving and to feel those feelings of craving to recognize them, but choosing to feel it rather than to escape or numb those withdrawal responses. Realizing that it is okay to feel this way and understand that it will subside. This is a meditation strategy that allows individuals to be far more conscious of their reactions and feelings to the environment around them. Sarah has shown that this strategy, when combined with other strategies, can be very helpful in those suffering with drug addiction. She published some work on this in 2009 in individuals with cannabis addiction and last year in 2019 for those living with cocaine addiction in the American Journal of Psychiatry, for example. Another strategy to deal with withdrawal symptoms is to override the lateral habenula by adding healthful, rewarding things to your life. So for example, adding things to your life that can release dopamine in the reward centers of the brain, such as listening to good music, exercising, heat therapy such as a hot bath or sauna use, social interaction and chatting with good people, comedy shows, playing a strategy-based video game, and more. And I go into detail and the studies that support these suggestions in episode one. So these rewarding, potentially helpful tasks can help override those withdrawal symptoms. So in brief, how to break an old habit? First thing is to be conscious of your actions and ask yourself why you are doing this. This conscious thought will help override your habit-forming brain regions. Second, Deal with the withdrawal so you don't relapse. To do this, change your cues in your environment. Using mindfulness-based meditation, you can recognize how you react to your environment and become comfortable with these withdrawal feelings. And lastly, add helpful, rewarding things to your routine to override the lateral habenula withdrawal response. So that is a wrap, my People Scientist Army, the first episode of the year 2020. I kicked off this year with a timely episode on how we can use our own neurobiology to fight bad habits and to instill new healthy habits. In brief summary, many brain regions play an important role in our ability to form habits such as the dorsolateral striatum, the infralimbic cortex, and the substantia nigra. In the context of forming new healthy habits, we want these brain regions to be recruited and activated. And it is known that a stronger dopamine input to these brain regions induces strong habit formation. So how do we do that? We can find activities that are intrinsically, and perhaps extrinsically, rewarding and motivating to us. Such as doing a task that you enjoy. Performing a task because the goal is very important to you. Adding rewarding things such as your favorite music. Spending time with your friends during the task heat therapy during the task, or by having measurable achievements for yourself to instill confidence and pride. The more simple the task, the more specific it is, the more repetitive it is, and the more cues you have to incite the action, the more likely the habit will form. For example, if your goal is to learn a new language, then your goal is better framed to say, I will learn five new words every day while brushing my teeth. You brushing your teeth is the cue reminder to do the action. It is specific, simple, and measurable. To make it an even better goal, somehow adding in a rewarding factor would help. For example, getting to listen to your favorite song during this task. Testing yourself after it and feeling proud you learned the five new words can help this task be more motivating. Now, in the context of eliminating a bad habit, we need to override our habitual brain centers by recruiting our decision-making and conscious thought brain regions. So we can do this with mindfulness-based practice to start to break that automatic cycle in questioning our actions. Once we break that cycle, we need to deal with the recruitment of the lateral habenula and withdrawal symptoms. In order to do that, we can either do mindfulness-based relapse prevention by Sarah Bowen, in which we train ourselves to accept our withdrawal symptoms and learn to become comfortable with them. Or we can add healthful, rewarding activities to override the lateral habenula withdrawal response, such as adding exercise, heat therapy, listening to your favorite music, interacting with people, etc. I have more suggestions in episode 1, so feel free to go back and give that episode a listen. Another strategy is for short term to avoid your cues and triggers, which is most likely the space or location you're in when you perform the unhealthy habit. Over time, you can change what that environment means to you. Now, I hope that this episode was enjoyable and insightful for all of you. If you have any follow-up questions, feel free to message me on any of my social media platforms. Let me know what goals you have planned for yourself this year. For example, you can get in touch with me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram. My handles will be in the description box to this episode below. I'm also adding a new platform to this week to my podcast, and that is TikTok. I will be uploading short videos to TikTok on this week's episode in order to share some core takeaways for the week, and I plan to do that every week for each episode. So if you are on TikTok, make sure to give me a follow. Again, my handle will be below. If you are enjoying the podcast, then please do me a favor and rate and review my podcast, especially if you are listening on Apple Podcasts. And please tell a friend about the show so they can become a part of the People Scientist Army too. I hope you all have a super healthy week, and I will meet you back here next week, the same time and the same place on the People Scientist podcast. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discussed are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.